Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. If you are three, four, five years older in kindergarten, follow Aiden back to the back. Miss Jesse, Mr. Philip are back there. Uh, Nancy is on her way back there. I got to tell you, Nancy, uh, leading in worship with a baby strap to you is pretty impressive. Um, today is a, is a wonderful day. We have a lot of um, uh, family that's here. Uh, I see Anna Lee is back. Welcome, Anna Lee. It's good to see you here in, uh, in Avon. And my good friend, Dr. Siegel and Miss Peggy, they're here this morning with us. And it was just good to see you. Um, I, I recognize I'm starting to turn into like the, the angry old man that lives across the fence. Uh, I realized this last night. When I saw that it's supposed to rain all day today and tomorrow, and my first thought was, good, none of those kids will be in my backyard setting fireworks off at 11.30 at night while I'm trying to sleep. Um, but no, it's a, it's a wonderful weekend. It's a weekend we get to celebrate. And I think it's really fitting that on a weekend in which we're celebrating freedom and uh, all the things that come with that, that today we talk about the thing that is, frankly, one of the things that most easily enslaves us, and that is our money. And so if you've got your wallets, I want you to turn to, I'm, I'm joking, sort of, um, James chapter 5, and I want us to uh, look this morning together at this passage. Now, I want to tell you at the outset that there is, I think, a danger that some of us are going to tune this out because we're going to hear the word rich and say, well, I don't qualify and no longer pay attention. And I'm going to address that concern in a minute, but I want you to bear in mind the passage that we're about to read together applies to you regardless of your financial statement. If you would stand in the honor of the reading of God's word, James chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. So we continue our series through James. He's been warning us about uh, worldliness and uh, falling into the trap of dependency upon ourselves. And then he speaks to those who are the rich. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. and You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for the gift of your word. And Lord, as we talk about something like money, and uh, God, I just know that the, the tendency, at least in, in amongst fellow pastors, is when money comes up to kind of cringe. But, but Lord, everything you give us is a gift and ought to be celebrated, and that includes our finances. And so, Father, as we talk about this passage together, God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that your people would be encouraged where encouragement is needed, that we'd be challenged and convicted where those things are needed. Regardless of how we've come in here, God, today I recognize that so many of us have come in and, and our mood matches the weather, God. We're kind of just uh, uh, darkened and, and, and tired and fatigued. And God, we come in carrying different burdens and concerns. And, and Father, I pray that we would turn to you in the midst of that concern, in the midst of those difficulties. 
that, God, we would leave this place differently than the way we've come into it because we have encountered and spent time with you. Father, we pray all of these things as we do each and every week, not for our name's sake, but that you might be glorified in and through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, there's this, in verse 1, this warning to the rich. And as I said a moment ago, I think it's important that we define rich because I don't know if you all are like me, but I read rich and I'm like, and eh, not qualifying here. I read uh, Chris Bailey, I don't know where you are, but some article this week that said that if you make up $25,000 a year, if you earn $25,000 a year, it means you are in the upper 2% of the world's wealth. $25,000 a year, you're in the upper 2% of the world's wealth. Now, let's say that you say, well, but that doesn't factor in cost of living and all those things. Okay, the point of God's word here is not that um, you have to meet a certain dollar amount to classify. The point is, and and the point in this article is, is that you have more than you realize that you have. The problem is that for many of us, we always believe that rich is just a little bit more than what we have right now. So when I graduated from high school, the idea that somebody could earn $25,000 in a year seemed unbelievable to me, right? And you start to earn a little bit more money and you're like, that money goes by fast. Uh, What I really need is if I could just get another three or $4,000 a year, then I'd be set, right? I I was listening. You guys know I love sports. I'm listening to the numbers that are getting thrown around at NBA free agency, The Pacers signed a guy for three years and $30 million, right? And he's on the low end, right? He's going to make $10 million a year and he's on the low end. We always believe that rich is just a a little bit more than what we have right now. And the question I have for you is, when is enough enough? I, I love John Wesley in 1731 began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. He records that in one year, his income was 30 pounds and that his living expenses were 28 pounds. And so therefore he gave away two pounds. The next year, his income doubled, right? So he went from making 30 to making 60. He still managed to live on 28 pounds so that he had 32 pounds to give to the poor. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds. And instead of allowing his expenses to rise with his income, he kept his expenses at 28 pounds and gave away 62. In the fourth year, he received 120 pounds. And as before, his expenses were 28. So his giving rose to 92 pounds. He's finally, he just said, this is, I don't need more than this. Anything I get above this is going to be given away. This is so counterintuitive to us and the culture in which we live. I can tell you as a former banker that the problems of the rich are the same problems of the poor. They just have more zeros behind them. The problem is not your bank account, it's your heart. You still think that you're not rich. Consider the wealth of the things at your disposal that others would give anything for. Drinkable water. You can right now Stand up and walk around the corner here and get as much free drinkable water as you want. There are people all over the world that would give anything for that privilege. You have a vehicle that you drove here in? 
There are people all over the world that don't, wouldn't, wouldn't even know what to do if they had a vehicle, much less two. You own a home. You have a, a, an apartment that you rent. You have a job. You have education. You have available education. You have free education available to you. Master Seminary right now has the majority of their master's work available for free online. You can take a free seminary education online. You have family close by. Listen, I know for many of you, you've moved here and you've moved away from family, right? We talk about who lives in Avon and the majority of the people that live in Avon have moved here from someplace else, from the south typically, and they don't have family here. But God in his glorious mercy in your life has seen fit to surround you with a church family that loves you and cares about you. You are rich indeed. 1 Timothy 6, Paul says these words in verses 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. You hear that? We have food and clothing and with these we will be content. And yet this is so often not the case in our heart and mind. Ralph Davis, I was reading about his commentary on this passage, said that he's reminded of his wealth when he takes out the trash twice a week. I have so much that twice a week I bag up the remains and throw them away. Church, we are wealthy people. James tells the rich, he warns them to weep and to howl for the misery that is coming. Isaiah 13, the prophet says, Wail for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. As I was thinking and reading through this passage, I thought of the great Charles Dickens character from A Christmas Carol. I thought of Ebenezer Scrooge and what he sees as his future, as he hoards his wealth, what he sees as what is coming his way as he continues to hoard his wealth. And the problem was not that he was wealthy. The problem was that his heart was sick. It was consumed with possessions and treasures of this world. Jesus says in Matthew 19 to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Because they've built up within themselves not a wealth that is problematic, but a heart reliance upon self. I can fix this. I can do this. I can make this. I I can accomplish this by myself. The problem with that is God's word is replete with reminders that you cannot do this by yourself. You can't. And as long as you continue to rely upon self, you're not going to follow after him. What does Jesus say to the rich young ruler? He tells him to go and sell everything. Why? It's not because Jesus needed the money, right? Jesus says sell everything and then give money to the poor. He tells him to sell everything because this man's heart is consumed with his riches. So there's a very strong warning from James right here at the outset. And then he reminds them, listen, these things that you are so hot to pursue that will ultimately cause your misery are a wealth that rots. You see, the problem is that they have a misplaced hope. I I read this week that the average person sees in a given day 360 advertisements. 360. Now think about it. You have a phone in your pocket. 
that any time that you turn it on likely is sending you an advertisement. If you access social media, television, I mean, every commercial is, uh, is an advertisement for something. Your computer, your fill in the blank, right? You can't, I can't even pick up my Kindle that doesn't have an advertisement for the next book I ought to read. And each of these ads is charged with doing the exact same thing. To create a feeling of desire and need within you while suggesting that the only way to meet that desire is to buy their product. So you should be like Michael Jordan, buy his shoes. You should be cool like this uh, celebrity, drink this drink. You should enjoy uh, a larger, newer home, so buy in this subdivision. You should have a cool car. We'll make the payments lower and lower and lower so that you can afford it. And all of these things are done to stir up within us this, I have to have this, right? The iPhone 6 comes out, right? And everybody jumps to to buy a new phone regardless of whether their old phone works or doesn't work because it's the latest and greatest thing. And so that's These messages, 360 of them every single day, 365 days a year, unless you're in the woods, right? If you're in the woods, then you might be getting away from it for just a little while. What is truly remarkable about all of this is that we indulge ourselves and we purchase that item that we think will bring fulfillment, and ultimately it doesn't do it, right? How many of you have ever eaten at McDonald's and felt satisfied? And that that was a good life choice. Right? And yet the commercials, right? The commercials make it look really good. And in fact, there's like there's a whole um there's a there's a whole website dedicated to uh this guy. He he takes advertising pictures and then he goes and buys what's in the advertisement and shows you what you're actually getting. Has anybody ever eaten a Big Mac that looked like the Big Mac on the commercial? I've never seen such a thing, right? That vacation that we have saved for is over all too quickly. That promotion or that car or that house that we think if I could just get that, they satisfy for a moment, but that moment passes. Do you remember that feeling of your first car? The the freedom that you got when you were like, this is my car. I can drive it anywhere I want to, so long as I have gas in it. That feeling. And remember what your friend's first car? So I, my first car, I'll tell you about it in a minute. My first car was a 1992 Oldsmobile Cutlass Calais. I was the envy of everybody in my driveway. <laughs> Y'all get that, right? Because it's just me, right? I, I was all kinds of fired up about my Oldsmobile Cutlass Calais. My best friend pulled up in a 1979 Datsun 280Z that was in mint condition. It was black. It had T-tops, leather interior. It was awesome. When we went, so what we did in high school, all right, we, we went cruising green. Green is Green River Road in Evansville. And on Friday nights, you got in the car, you put on Will Smith, um, and you cranked up Will Smith, and you cruised up and down Green River Road. You know what I never heard in high school? Hey, Scott, let's take your car. <laughs> Not one time. Not one time. But when I first bought that car, I thought it was the greatest thing since pockets on a shirt, right? Since sliced bread, since anything else. But you know how long that feeling stayed? Until I saw my best friend's car. And then I thought, man, I need a better car. 
I need a cooler car. What happens is these things that we set up as if I could just get this or just attain that, what they do is it's a false expectancy. And what instead of creating freedom and satisfaction and joy in our life, what it creates is anxiety. So that same car, 1992 Oldsmobile Cutlass Calais, I kid you not, when I would drive to my grandparents' house, they had two toll booths that I had to go through to get to their house. My car would break down in every single one of the toll booths. Uh, it would just die. And so I got really good at judging when I needed to let off the brake so that by the time I came to the toll booth, I was going slow enough I could toss the money in and hit the gas and keep going. It was, a, it was a terrible car. It literally broke down on me on the way out of the dealership's lot. And I, I, the dealer was like, man, I'm so sorry. I'll get that taken care of for you. And like three weeks later, I picked up my awesome car. But you know what? I never stressed over that car. Now, I stressed whether maybe it was going to run, but like I got into an accident because I was 16, and what 16-year-old boy doesn't get into a small accident, right? I had a beauty mark on the front as a result of that. I, I never stressed about that. I never bothered to fix it. I didn't worry about it. The paint, because it was old, like paint started to kind of chip off the bumper on the back. You know how much I stayed up at night thinking about that? Not at all. I didn't, I didn't care that the ceiling was caving down. I, used, uh, I had a staple gun in my car so that if the thing started kind of drifting down in my eyes, I could just, boom, shoot it up right up into the ceiling. I had no anxiety. But I got another job, and I started to save some money. And I got, when we, Jesse and I got married, we got our first real car, right? Like, I felt like a grown-up. You know the difference between a 16-year-old's car and a grown-up's car, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. And we got a grown-up's car. Man, if I got a little beauty mark on the front of that thing, I'd have been hot. I'd have been mad. Man, I washed and waxed that car. Put leather polish on there so much so Jesse get in, she'd slide off like the seat. I loved that car. But what it, what it created in me was anxiety, right? We had, I kid you not, and this is not Scott Scottoriar, but I just want to drive home this point that it's a false expectation, right? It is not met. We had a house that we rented when we were in seminary. Dr. Siegel, you'll appreciate this. I always thought that the stories pastors told about being poor in seminary were cute and not, that was not going to be me. And um, we were broke as a joke in seminary, right? And we rented this house from a friend of ours because it was dirt cheap. I kid you not, when we moved, there was grass that had grown up on this side of the wall, right? Like on the inside. So I started cutting the grass in my living room. And it wasn't even shag carpet, people. It was like, but you know what about that house? I never worried about it. Like it was at the end of like a a little cul-de-sac thing. People would like hop the curb and go up into my yard. Did not care at all. Doesn't bother me a bit. Our house now, we own that house. So when it floods in our neighborhood and people want to drive up through my yard, I'm that curmudgeonly old man from across the fence, right? Like I've got a lawn chair and an umbrella and a baseball bat and I'm sitting in the front yard. Don't you get up in my yard. It creates anxiety within us, right? I got I to gotta take care of this. I got to protect this thing that I've paid for and bought and it's mine. And we sound like a three-year-old with a new toy on Christmas, right? This is my toy. This is my stuff. This is my. We become consumed with our stuff. And it's such a subtle thing that creeps into our hearts. and We don't even realize it. And we laugh because of the ridiculous of my car. 
But if something as silly as a car can so consume your heart, church, it is deadly dangerous how subtly these things creep into our hearts and gain purchase there. Perhaps for you it's something entirely different. You think that my story about a car just sounds ridiculous, but for you, it's your kids, your job. You cling to these things and hold on to them. There's something so important that I need you to understand. We are eternal and the temporal will never satisfy the eternal. We have been created to be eternal beings. You all understand that? We have an expiration date here on this earth, but we will live eternally in the presence of God. We are eternal creatures. And things that pass away will never ultimately satisfy those things which are eternal. Solomon says it this way in Ecclesiastes 3. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. God has placed eternity in your heart heart. So the chasing after these things is like being dehydrated and drinking salt water. Ultimately, it will kill you. The chasing after and the pursuing things on this earth, the, the grabbing hold of and refusing to let go of that which is meant to be temporary, well, ultimately, it will, it will bring about death and rot. Practical implication of this, this idea of never having enough is going to drive us to deeper and deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. It's what Ecclesiastes is really all about, right? Solomon was a kind of rich that we'll never understand, right? Jesse and I, we, we, we like, uh, Shebert, you'll appreciate this. We like, uh, we like when I have fresh veggies at our house, we planted a little garden. Uh, but when I say little, I mean little, like, Four foot by four foot. Um, We plant gardens, and we think that that's a big deal. Solomon planted forests. Right? Plural. He planted forests. Man was rich beyond anything we'll never experience or understand. And in his pursuit of all of these things, what is his conclusion? Vanity. It's chasing after the wind. None of it ultimately satisfies. You read about these wealthy athletes and how many of them have hundreds of millions of dollars and yet, you know, five, ten years after retirement, it's all gone. They have nothing to show for it. Matt Chandler preaches a great series through this book of Ecclesiastes. And if this is something that you struggle with, I'd strongly encourage you to check that out. Our pursuit, though, will produce an ever-increasing willingness to pursue that thing that we so desire whatever the cost. So that thing that you hold as so important, you'll pursue it whatever the cost. And ultimately, this reveals within us a wickedness that that resides in our hearts. Again, Paul's helpful in 1 Timothy 6. He says these words, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money has led people to walk away from the church. And then James tells us three specific things that are produced as a result of our heart being captured by these things in verses 4 through 6. In verse 4, we see that there is fraud that develops in our heart, a willingness to commit fraud. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You see, church, we will lie and steal and cheat in an effort to gain that which we want. We'll do whatever it takes. We will hold, that, hold back that which belongs to others. If you think that you don't do this, look at your own checkbook or your banking app or your online bank. Look, look at how you spend your money and ask yourself, do you seek to give as little as humanly possible in order to hoard all that remains? We talk about tithing, church. I mean, this is a biblical concept, right? You guys know that? I'm not shocking anybody by the idea that you're supposed to give money to the church, that it's a biblical command, that if you don't do that, the lights aren't on and you can't hear me. Well, actually, you could hear me. I don't need a microphone for you to hear me. This is a biblical idea. And what so frustrates me as a pastor at times is when the conversation turns to the percentages. Well, what percentage am I supposed to give? That's the entirely, that's that's not the right question, right? Because what you're asking so oftentimes, if we're just being real with each other, what I'm asking when I'm thinking about that question is, how little do I have to give before God zaps me with something? Do you freely hold and therefore freely give, or do you just give what you can get away with? Do you give first or give what remains? When you go to a restaurant, do you try to calculate the minimal tip that you can give without appearing too cheap? It is sad to me that when we have uh, convention gatherings, state, national, that there's almost always a statement made from the front, listen, you're here and the community knows that you're here. Don't be miserly with your tips at the restaurants. That is not a people whose hearts have been captivated by a Savior who has graciously and generously given to them. That we would hoard whatever it is that we have to buy another cup of Starbucks, to, to, to buy these things that pass away. We say that we're simply attempting to be good stewards of our money when in fact we're simply hoarding it, refusing to be generous. And what James says in verse 5, piggybacking on this idea of fraud, this idea that you're willing to do whatever it takes to hoard as much as you can have, he says, listen, ultimately you're self-indulgent. Ultimately, you're self-indulgent. Jesus has strong words for those who hoard their wealth in an effort to live in luxury. In Luke 6, verses 24 and 25, Jesus says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. 
Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There's, there's, scriptures are replete with these warnings. Why? Because we just seem to think that on this earth, if I could just get a little bit more, I would feel more secure, safe, comfortable. And Jesus is saying, listen, you're pursuing the wrong thing. You're chasing after the wrong thing. Church, we are to recognize the giver of the gifts that we have and then hold them with open hands. Your your children, your home, your vehicles, your job, these are all gifts from the Heavenly Father that you hold with open hands to be given to others. We have some dear friends of ours who um, adopted four children from Ethiopia. And the, the, the heart's cry of their oldest child is to go back and share the gospel with Mama Fati because she is a Muslim and does not have a relationship with Jesus. And rather than discouraging that in any way, mom and dad are saying, sweetheart, we're going to do everything we can to encourage you to go back and share the gospel with Mama Fati. They're holding their children with open hands saying, God, arrows are meant to be shot, not hoarded. Where do you want them to go? Can I just tell you, church, as a father with a precious baby girl that I love more than just about anything on the face of this planet, that when she walks through that room, and many of you have experienced this, Chad Richardson, you've experienced this, I think maybe even last week, when she walks through that room, everything else stops because she's going to come run into daddy and I'm just going to scoop her up and love on her. I'm not to cling her and hold her and refuse to turn her loose. She is God's child that I'm stewarded with for a season. Church, we are not to be self-indulgent, clinging to these things, but to be freely given. Your health, your time, your talents, your resources, these are all things that have been freely given to you that you have not earned or merited, but have been given to you by a gracious heavenly father, and we are to hold with open hands and to give to others. I was almost in tears this week reading the Jesus Storybook Bible with Josie as we read about Abraham and Isaac and how he held his only son with open hands before God Almighty. He did not hold him with clenched fists or begrudgingly, but in faithful recognition that what God has given is God's. He worships the giver of the gift and not the gift itself. This fraudulent nature, this pursuit of self-indulgence creates within us even a tendency towards murder. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He did not even resist you. You see, we read things like this, right? We read warnings to the rich and we think, I'm not rich. We read about self-indulgence and we think, I'm not self-indulgent. Have you seen the car I drive? And we read um, that they're murdering people and you're like, I would never murder anybody. Church, I just need to remind you of a couple of things. One, King David, a man after God's own heart, written sizable portions of scripture, sees Bathsheba and is willing to commit fraud and to be self-indulgent, and ultimately to murder in order to gain that which he wants. This is King David. This is not some schlub. This is the man after God's own heart. 
think you're above this. Consider again what Jesus says, right? We've said that James, uh, in, in, by, by many commentaries, um, uh, commentators' estimation, is a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say about murder? Jesus says, if you have hatred in your heart, then you've already committed murder. We see that time and time again, Jesus doesn't dumb down the law. He amplifies the law. So that's why I, when I get in conversations with you about tithing, if you ever had that conversation with me, you're not going to like it. We're probably only going to have one conversation because here's what I always tell people. In the law, it was 10%. Does Jesus ever dumb the law down or does he always amplify the law up? He always amplifies it. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. I tell you, if you have hatred in your heart, then you already are a murderer. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you that if you commit lust, that you already are an adulterer. You've heard it said, give 10%. I'm here to tell you, I'm not going to go there. Again, you we, we think, we, we play these mental linguistic gymnastics to make this not about us, to make this about other people, to make this about them when there's wickedness that resides in our own hearts. Just watch the news for a segment or two. People kill one another over the most ridiculous things. Over money, yes. Over he said, she said, over sports teams over literally which side of the street you were born on, over how dark or light your skin is. We harbor hatred and anger in our hearts over the most ridiculous things because our hearts are wicked. Our hearts are sick. There's only one cure for a wicked heart, and that's a new one. You can't fix it. I, I, Josie and I talk, we talk all the time about how our hearts are sick and that we can't fix it because she loves to play doctor, right? She's got her stethoscope on. I'm like, that kind of sickness I'm talking about, we cannot fix it. We have to have a new heart. And that heart comes from him and him alone. What James is telling us is that the world is going to consistently sell you a bill of goods that it will never satisfy. He's warning you that the pursuit of these things will ultimately lead to your misery. Matt Chandler was very helpful in this passage. He says, you're not just wearing the clothes you're wearing because you think they're comfortable. You're not just driving the car that you're driving. We've been discipled. We've been discipled by the world in which we live. They have defined for us what is attractive. They have defined for us what is manly. They've defined what is feminine. They've defined what the world should look like. And they have lied to us. And this should come as no surprise, right? Because Satan is the father of lies. And the world has lied to us about what all of these things ought to look like. And if we're not careful, we'll breathe all of that in. We'll buy into what the world is selling. And what creates in us is not a heart that is pursuing after Jesus, but a heart that is corrupted and sick and is willing to give whatever it takes to pursue that next thing. This is why, church, that we spent a year talking about finding your identity in Jesus. A year talking about 
that your identity is not found in the clothes you wear, the car you drive, the house you live in, the job that you go to, the number of children that you have, the church that you attend, the sports team that you root for. Your identity is not found in these things. Your identity is found in Jesus. And I've been pleading with you for the better part of a year and a half now that you cannot live the life that God has called you to live until you understand that. John Hearing will never be the kind of father and husband that God has created him to be if he does not first understand his identity in Jesus. It will never happen. The same is true for you. The same is true for me. And can I just tell you, as your pastor, that I'm constantly warring with this thing. Trying to find my identity in him and him alone and not as a pastor, not as a husband, not as a father, not in the size of our church or the sphere of influence that we wield or in any of these things, right? Because I hear that all the time. Scott, you got to find your identity in this. Is your car too nice? Is your car not nice enough? Is your house in the right neighborhood? Is it not quite in the right neighborhood? I mean, I hear these messages all of the time. If I'm not careful, what those messages subtly do is they create in me a desire to pursue things that are not Jesus. So how are they to respond? Well, number one um, is the gospel, church. Again, I will plead with you until my last dying breath that the answer to your solution is not behavioral modification, but a pursuit of Jesus. Your your problem is not seven steps to a happy and healthy marriage. Your problem is not if you could just get this promotion or job change or move into this neighborhood. Those are not your problem. Your problem is that you're not pursuing Jesus the way that you should. I'm not pursuing Jesus the way that I should. And as it relates to our money, when the gospel is brought to bear on our finances, what we need to be reminded of is the generosity of God. Jesus says in Matthew 19, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And what did the disciples say when they heard this? They're greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? If rich people can't be saved, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. There is nobody here in this room that is so far from the grace and mercy of God that he cannot receive you and buy you and give you that new heart that we've talked about. You cannot save you. You can't fix it. You can't tweak it. You can't, there's nothing that you can do that's going to merit or earn something that only God can give. Only God can bring about. God sins. Jesus comes. He dies upon the cross, absorbing the wrath that is so richly deserved by us. Then he grants the righteousness of Christ to us. He imputes that righteousness to us. And the gospel in and of itself is the generosity of God on display for all people for all time. This is the generosity of God. You did not earn merit or deserve it. You spit in the face of Jesus. I spit in the face of Jesus. We again play these games where we say, I'm not at war with Jesus. I'm just neutral. There's no neutrality. There's no gray area. You were an enemy of God and he sent his son to die for you. 
This is the generosity of God. And if you understand what was given so that you might receive salvation, how dare you hold tightly to the things of this world that will pass? When you and I catch a glimpse of this reality, this identity in the gospel and the generosity of God on display in the gospel, when you and I get just even a momentary glimpse of this reality, when we see this reality, what it produces within us is freedom. We, we no longer see Do's and don'ts, or how much do I have to give and how much can I keep for myself? What we experience is freedom to say, you know what? It's not mine to begin with. Can you use this? Yeah, you can have that. My time is not my own. My finances are not my own. My car is not my own. I'm free to give it away, to allow others to use, to benefit from what God has so graciously given to me. I don't cling any longer and that anxiety that I felt at buying that new car doesn't exist anymore. I'm free. We said earlier that the accumulation of stuff ultimately produces anxiety. The glorious news of the gospel is that it produces freedom. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to this particular sin. In Romans 8, we're told that God has made us sons not slaves. We have an inheritance that we can't even fathom that if we could even get just a momentary glimpse of the grandness of our inheritance, then we would look at everything that exists here as as nothing. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Church, we're free. We celebrate the freedoms that we enjoy as Americans this weekend, and we should. Those were hard-won freedoms. And even with the changing uh, scope and nature of the government around us, and who knows what the future may hold, we still experience freedoms like no other country on this earth. I have a friend of mine who's a church planter in Montreal, and they can't get a space to meet in. Not because they can't afford it, but because the government won't allow them to. We had no, when we bought this building, we had nobody telling us we couldn't do it. Yeah, the government didn't say, okay, you can meet here, but you can't meet there. Nobody tells us that we can or cannot gather this morning and sing praises to our Savior. And yet, I have a a friend who's pastoring a church in Hong Kong this morning that they don't have a membership roster because if their membership roster fell into the wrong hands, then the government would have the names and addresses and faces of every Christian in the room. Church, we have tremendous freedoms. But there is no, no freedom that is greater than the freedom in Christ. There's no freedom than the freedom that is found ultimately in recognizing that we have been redeemed, as we say. So how then practically do you respond? Well, if you're here this morning and you have never received the free and generous gift of God in salvation, I want to plead with you not to leave this place today without receiving that gift. As I said earlier, we stand, I stand condemned in my sin and Jesus paid the penalty. He came to this earth, he died on a cross, he rose again, and he has offered freely to us 
salvation. If you've never received that gift of salvation, I want to plead with you this morning not to leave this place without having done that. I'll be here at the front during our time of response. You can come then. Uh, We've got some guys with City View shirts on. You can talk to any of those guys. They will be happy to share with you. I just want to plead with you, don't leave without receiving the most generous thing that you can possibly receive today, and that is the gift of salvation. Some of us need to repent of selfishly hoarding and pursuing that next thing. You would admit this morning to yourself that there's always in the back of your mind, if I could just get this, I just had that. That needs to be repented of. I wrote this thinking figuratively, but it, it may be literally what you need to do this morning is to walk up here and lay your wallet on the altar and just say, Lord, it is yours, all of it. My finances, everything I have, it is yours. Now, there's nothing significant about a bunch of plywood that's hammered together, all right? It's hammered, right, Dustin, or screwed? Screwed? Okay, yeah. Nothing significant about that. That's how little I know about it, right? Didn't even know if it was hammered or screwed together. It's just a bunch of wood. But can I tell you something, church? I think that there is something very practical um, and very, um, very helpful about coming forward. Here's what I think it is. We will sit in our seats on a Sunday morning, feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, right? Know that there's some sort of change that needs to take place. And what happens is we'll stand and sing and you're very sincere and and serious in that conviction. And you sing and you praise God and you have every intention of leaving this place and doing what God has told you to do. And yet so much time elapses that the, the, the weight of that sinfulness, the weight of that change that needs to take place, it just kind of dissipates. And I think there's something about saying, you know what? I'm serious about wanting to do this, and I'm going to take that first step here, where I've got church family that loves and supports and encourages me here. And what may happen is Chad may, and I'm just picking on Chad because he's in the front row, and it'd be a short trip for him, right? But Chad may come to the altar, and those steps right here enable him to take the steps across the street in his neighborhood, or to write that check, or to walk across the, the hallway at his workplace and to do what God is telling him to do. These steps may be those very first steps. And so I I, want to encourage you to take advantage of this time of response. And uh, some of you need to just sit and to to pray and stand and to rejoice and thank and praise God for the generosity that he has shown you. But as you consider these things, I want you to have the opportunity to respond to God and his word this morning. We're going to spend the next few moments together in prayer prayer in response to God's word. After our time of response, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. And I I want you to have some time in these next few moments to prepare your heart to receive the Lord's Supper. And I want to give you just a few very specific, very short, quick ways that you can do that. One is to come forward and pray. Spend some time on your knees before the Lord. Secondly, as I mentioned earlier, to receive the gift of salvation. I would love nothing more than for you to get to partake in the Lord's Supper for the very first time today because you received the gift of salvation. And thirdly, church, I want to continue to invite you to confess and to repent. To confess and to repent. You're surrounded by a church family that loves you and a pastor that loves you. And what you will receive from your church family, from your pastor, is not hand of condemnation, but a hug, (laughs) prayer. You'll receive encouragement, celebration in what God's doing in your life. 
But I want to invite you to respond. So if I may, let me pray for each of you in this place together. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us. That, Lord, in your goodness to us, that you would give us eyes to see, a sense to understand the things that need to take place next. That we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but that we would be uh, doers of the word, Father. We wouldn't sit silently on a Sunday morning and nod our heads in agreement and then walk out of this place uh, unchanged. I pray even now, Father, that the desire to, to rush out of here would be removed, that we would just take these next few moments as we sing in response to the word, as we participate in uh, the taking of the Lord's Supper, to consider and to think through and to apply your word in our lives. Thank you for how you engage us in this book, in this book from James. How you lean into us and want what is best for us. Father, I pray that as we respond to you this morning, that you would be glorified in and through this place. I pray these things in Jesus' name.